Build Radio, Episode 4. Okay, so we know that Build is definitely in the building. Make some noise, Build! Build solve real problems. Build future. Build solve real problems. There's a lot of gun violence in my community. I always have to be careful when I go out to the streets because, like, I never know when they're gonna start shooting. Carlos was uh, 18 years old. He was gunned down when she was only 15 years old. You're not gonna do this to my city. You're not gonna do this to our children. We need help. We need help now. We need to stop it now. You are listening to Bill Radio. How Bill made me feel, made me feel like I'm in a safe haven, like I'm protected, I'm guarded. How do I feel about Bill? I feel like they gonna help me make it in life. It just makes me feel at home, like I have people that care about me here. I look at Bill like family, so they mean a lot to me. It make me feel like I'm smart, like I'm a part of something good instead of being a part of some violence or something bad. I feel loved when I come to Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Build Radio. My name is Benji Wax, and I thank you so much for coming along. We know there's a boatload of podcasts out there you could be listening to, but we thank you so much for listening to this one, because it's a pretty special one. Because by listening, you're joining our team, the team of folks from all over who support the mission of Build Chicago and have saved tens of thousands of young lives by doing so. Opening your eyes up to the realities of the problems, it's the first step. Then together with empathy, with persistence, we can change a young person, and then another, and another. And if you can change some kids, you can change a block. And if you can change some blocks, you can change a neighborhood. And if you can change some neighborhoods, you can change a city. So if it's your first episode with us, a very, very warm welcome. And if you've been along with us for the ride so far, well, a warm welcome back. And either way, you're in store for a fascinating, unbelievable, tragic, but inspiring, very powerful episode. We're going to kick off with the radio drama debut of Death is Contagious, the story of Build street intervention specialist Max Serda that was chronicled a few years back in a collection of youth violence stories called How Long Will I Cry, and later adapted for stage at the Steppenwolf Theater. The audio production features Chicago actor Tommy Rivera Vega with a dramatic interpretive reading of a reverent and reflective Max. The audio piece will be followed by a raw and intimate in-studio interview with Max himself. We'll talk about gang life, to what prison and solitary confinement were like, and now on the other side of all that, what his work with Build means to him. So without any further ado, Build Media proudly presents the radio drama debut of Death is Contagious, the story of Max Serda. When I look at the face in the newspaper, I see anger, hurt, fear. Just a lost kid chasing an urban illusion. I thought that life was about killing and dying, nothing else. You know, there's a myth that kids who join gangs come from broken homes and stuff like that, and I'm sure that's true in a lot of cases, but in my case, it was not true. I came from a good family. My mother came from Mexico, and my father, he was Tejano. He was from Texas, from Brownsville. A lot of my uncles and my grandfather, I was named after him, Don Maximo. Moved up to Aurora, Illinois. Then they just eventually moved into the city, perhaps just like most Mexicans and immigrants at that time, just trying to find opportunity. Where I lived in Little Italy, Taylor Street and Loomis. It was a beautiful neighborhood. I'll never forget it. I still go there today when I have problems in my mind and I gotta clear it out. There's a park there, and I can still see me and my father having a race on the sidewalk. My father was a foreman for Acme Supply. He always had his shirt pocket full of pens, and it's funny because today I've always got my own shirt pocket full of pens, and every time I reach for them, I'm always thinking about my old man. 
and he used to come from work to take me to the park. We get some ice cream or buy some peanuts from the Sicilians who, who used to push the peanut cars on our streets. <laughs> it was nice, man. It was my father. I was an altar boy when I was young, but one day a friend of me got kicked out of there because we saw the communion wine and we drunk that wine up and we was eating the holy bread like potato chips, man. I was just reckless back then. I didn't want to pay attention. I was a smart ass. Every elementary school that I ever went to, I got kicked out of. I mean, everyone, Notre Dame, McLaren, everyone, even Montefiore, which was a reformatory school. I didn't take nothing seriously, didn't care. The only time I cared was when they said they were going to tell my father because my father played no games, man. He put it on me. I used to get whooped hard. I used to get welts on my back that'd be there for days, man. I could have lay on that side. Fifth, sixth grade, that's when things took a turn. Uh, this was by McLaren Elementary School in Little Italy. This was outside on the playground. I remember this one kid. I don't know if he was Italian or not, but he was white. And he said something to me, something racial, and I, I don't know why it bothered me because I, I never thought about, you know, being Mexican or nothing like that. But I was seeing people fight all the time, and I guess I was just waiting for somebody to say something to me, and this kid did. And I beat him down, I stomped him like he was on fire, I just couldn't stop, I felt empowered, man, I felt like... Damn, I'm not gonna take shit from nobody, I've been whooped so much at home, I ain't taking shit from nobody on the streets. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I know it now. It was exciting. It was contagious. It was like finding a gun. When I was about 11 years old, my father bought a house up here on the north side uh, by Avers in Iowa. I didn't want to leave Little Italy. I kept taking the bus back to the old neighborhood to see my friends, but like, a year or so later, I get to know young kids, Mexican kids. In Humboldt Park, they was in gang, so I fell into a Mexican gang called the Latin Diablos, and we were fighting the Puerto Ricans. But eventually, I ended up becoming part of that same Puerto Rican gang we used to fight. See, back in the day when I was gangbanging, we had what we would call our yo-yos, our peewees, our juniors, our seniors. I was a peewee and we did something wrong. So one day, the juniors and the seniors called a meeting in the garage and we all got whooped bad by these older guys. That made us mad, so we made peace with the Puerto Ricans. Uh, we became one gang. We kicked the older guys out of the neighborhood and that's where it began. When we were able to overcome these older guys, I realized, damn, we really do got power. It was an illusion, but I believed it. It wasn't about the girls. For me, at least, it wasn't about the girls. It wasn't about the money or fancy cars. We didn't have none of that. Hell, we all have bikes, regular bikes, twins. It was about the camaraderie, man. It, we looked out for each other and we protected the neighborhood. There was no burglaries in our neighborhood. There was no purses being snatched. But when the gunplay got involved, that changed everything, man. Everything changed. People started getting shot. You know, nothing serious at first, the leg or the back or something like that. But then this one guy got killed and we realized that this is life and death. It, it just escalated from there. It just didn't stop. Raymond. Raymond Cruz was the brother who died in my arms. First time I ever saw him was when I was still a Latin Diablo. You know, Raymond's Puerto Rican and I remember they sneaked up on us and he threw a brick at me. I said, man, I'm gonna get this punk, whoever he is. But then after my gang and his gang united, we became real cool, man. He got me into salsa, the Fania All-Stars, Willy Colon, Hector Lavoe, all of those guys. He turned me onto a new world of music. His mother used to live right behind our house and that's how we got close to him. My mom loved him. He used to come to the house beat up, caught up. My mother would sew him up, take care of him. My mother was like his personal doctor. So yeah, we got close like that, man. We just ended up getting real close. He was two years older than me. He was 18 going on 19. He decided to leave the neighborhood and move to Maywood and get a job at Zenith. He was so happy he had just got that job. 
I was always telling him, man, come back to the hood. We need you. You know, shit is happening over here. We need you. And he kept saying, man, you need to give that shit up. There's too much stuff going on right now. A lot of people getting shot, people getting killed. Why don't you come hang out a couple weeks by me in Maywood, man? Let this shit blow over. Finally, after like a month or two, I was able to talk him into coming back to pick me up just to spend some time with me. And we ended up getting ambushed. We got ambushed. This happened April 18th of 1979. It was a one-way street. There was a car, an LTD Ford, parked in front of us. And they threw up gang signs. I threw up gang signs. I was a passenger, and when I opened my door, I heard another car come right behind us. And by the time I looked back in front of me, the guys that were in the first car came out firing. I dove under the dashboard. I do not understand to this day how I did not even get wounded. Both of them guys put their guns in the car, and I did not get hit one time. But they ended up shooting Ray. They shot him 13 times. I remember hearing him gargling for air and when I heard the other cars take off, I stuck my head up and I looked at my brother and I seen he was full of blood. This was in the afternoon, about 2.30. The kids were coming out of school. There was a candy store right on the corner and I ran to tell the lady at the store to call the ambulance. When I got back to the car, there was an old Puerto Rican lady holding his body. Half his body was in the car and his head was hanging out. I put my arms under his head when I did that. A big, big thing of blood. Could have been his brains, I don't know. He came down. He was squeezing my left thumb. He had a bullet hole underneath one eye and his other eye was looking straight to the sky. He took his last breath. When that happened, I went straight to the dark side. The night we buried him, it was like five of us walking around trying to find the enemy. We were hurt, full of anger, full of pain. I, I didn't worry about getting locked up. I didn't worry about dying. I was looking for death, bro. I was running right into it, head on. The next day, I was arrested for murder. I was 16 years old, but I was tried as an adult. I fought my case for a year and a half or two years. In 1981, I got found guilty and sent to Joliet. From Joliet, I went to Menard, and then from Menard, I went to Stateville. And then from Stateville, I went to medium minimum joints, you know, getting transferred from hall to hall to hall. I was incarcerated from the age of 16 till the age of 35. It was something else, man. It was something else. Prison was something else. I did a total of five and a half years in solitary confinement. I would do 18 months one time, one year another time, Six months, one other time. A lot of people go to the hall and they find the end of the world. For me, I found a new world. I found a world of self. And that's where I learned how to think. It's where I learned how to read. It's where I learned how to cry. I needed that so much. Once, I was in the hall in Menard and this brother next to me, he, his name was Pops. He was from the Hells Angels. He was a biker. He looked like, like the bikers from the movies, man. Long hair, short, ugly, <laughs> mean looking. You know, for real, but he was a beautiful, beautiful brother, man. A beautiful brother. When I first got there, he goes, Hey, little brother, how you doing? I'm a biker. He was trying to help me out, but I was so ignorant, I thought he was representing. Biker? I don't give a fuck about biker. I'll chop your ass. And he just says, You know what, brother? I'll talk to you another time. So then, like, a few weeks later, he asked me, What are you in solitary for, man? 
And I started telling him, kind of explaining to him, but he goes, What does your ticket say? I go, my ticket? He goes, Yeah, the yellow paper that they give you, your disciplinary report. I said, oh, I, I, I don't know what the fuck this says. And now he's got a little mirror. He's sticking through the bars of his cell so that he can see me. Now we're looking at each other in the mirror. He goes, I don't mean no disrespect, but do you know how to read and write? I go, but I ain't stupid. And he says, little brother, I'll work with you, man. And I mean, he taught me. At night, he would write the vowels, you know, A-E-I-O-U. For a rugged looking dude, he was smart, man. He was fucking smart. I mean, uh, he got me to start to read and I was a straight knucklehead. I was in 10 or 12 schools and none of them could do it, but he did it. A acquiring the ability to read, it transformed me, man. Like, like we say it in Spanish, la cultura cura, culture heals. And that's what healed me, was culture. It made me positive. One thing for sure it did, it helped me to stop seeing my so-called enemy as my enemy and to start seeing him as my brother. Before that, man, I was so into gangbanging, I was in a trance, a trance of hate and confusion, you know, like a terrorist. To me, I was a soldier. I didn't see myself as a criminal. I wasn't a dope dealer. I seen myself as a soldier. I hit Statesville in 1984. That's where I met Jose Pizarro, the guy I work with now. But back then, I was still gangbanging against his group. I was people, and he was folks. He was the enemy. The first time I saw him was on the gallery, the walkway in front of the cells. Statesville is a roundhouse. It's like a big-ass birdcage, and you can see everything. And they would be over there, and we would be over here, sizing each other up. Jose was a... Uh, his chief of security, personal security for the leader of his gang, and I was a security guy for my guys, so I knew that if we was ever gonna hit his chief, we had to hit Jose first. We had this one brother in Stateville, Luis Rosa. He was a beautiful, intelligent brother. He preached to us about Latino awareness and Latino unity, but I wasn't educated then. I couldn't understand. That just sounded like Chinese to me. I thought it was too late for peace because too many brothers had died. But after I went to solitary a few more times, I really got an understanding of myself and what it means to be Latino and everything. I started reading the history of Mexicans, what we went through with my father, what my grandfathers and them went through. I kind of started feeling what Luis Rosa was talking about then. I had an awareness, uh, an awakening. And when I came out of solitary, I got involved in what Luis and these other guys were doing. I guess that's what really got me and Jose Pizarro close to one another. We both started preaching Latin unity, you know? We didn't say to each other, hey, you go talk to your guys, I'll talk to my guys. We didn't have that agreement, it just happened like that. I had to explain to my guys, this is what I feel, bro. I feel we're wasting our lives, we're killing ourselves for no fucking reason. This is crazy, this just gotta stop. In fact, I even had to kind of manipulate the situation a bit to make it seem as if this unity was a good criminal enterprise for us. For me, it was all about Latino unity, for real. But to have them understand it and accept it, I had to present it in a way where, you know, this would expand the criminal concept of what we're doing as an organization. As a united mob, we can do more shit. When we had our first meeting between the two sides in the chapel at Statesville, nobody sat down. Everybody was standing up, everybody had their knives on them, pipes. Everybody had vests in case we got stabbed so it wouldn't penetrate. It was hilarious. It was serious as hell, but it was hilarious. It was funny and scary at the same time, man. Nobody sat down, but we talked. We presented our case. Jose did it for his group. I did it for mine. That night, I figured one of two things was gonna happen. If I live to the morning, this is gonna work. And if not, I'm gonna get hit tonight. But it did work. This was in the early 1980s. Now, we're out here incorporated in the heart of Humboldt Park. Death is contagious. 
It is, man. Especially when you're lost and you're confused and you got everybody around you telling you this is what you're supposed to be doing. It's so contagious, it becomes part of you. If you ain't hit somebody in one night, jump them, uh, beat them up, shoot them, whatever. You can't even sleep well. I couldn't sleep well till I knew I hit somebody that night. Yes, I was part of that stupidity and that madness. I believed in that crazy shit. Just like these kids from Afghanistan who come from a war-torn state. I was coming from a war-torn state of mind. But when I look at that mugshot of myself at the age 16, it also reaffirms who and what I am today. It tells me that no matter how bad our past was, it's not how the story begins. It's where it leads to and what kind of legacy we leave behind. That people can change. I'm proud of who I am today and what I'm trying to accomplish. Getting kids out of gang, helping parolees prepare for reintegration into society and working with mothers who lost kids to violence. It's a form of redemption. But all that stuff that happened with me years ago when I was younger, it don't go away. You know, man? It just really don't go away. Guilt, remorse. Especially when I see a mother on TV crying that one of her kids got killed. There's times when I think about the moms I have made cry. And, and it is just, it really just fucks me up. I don't go nowhere. The more humble you become, the more remorseful you become, you know? Max Serda's story, Death is Contagious, was excerpted from How Long Will I Cry, an amazing and harrowing collection of stories in the voices of those affected by youth violence. The project and resulting book, How Long Will I Cry, was spearheaded and edited by Professor Miles Harvey and published by Big Shoulders Books and DePaul University. The story was produced for radio by Build Media with dramatic reading by Chicago actor Tommy Rivera Vega. You can order the book for free at BigShouldersBooks.com. And you're listening to Build Radio. This is Charles Peanut Tillman. This is Commissioner Boykin. Hi, I'm Sam Macho. I'm George McCaskey. This is U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, and you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... You are listening to Build Radio. Build Radio. Build Radio. Build Radio. Build Radio. That's right, you are listening to Build Radio, once again here on the Build Radio Podcast. Thanks so much for coming along with us. Today we have a, another very special guest that we've been trying to get here for a minute. We have Max Serdo. Welcome to the studio, sir. Hey, how you doing, brother? All right, all right. So we just listened to uh, the audio dramatic production version, us actually, the two of us, but then also the listeners in this episode, of Death is Contagious, a story that you kind of like co-wrote or like you interviewed for that was turned into a story. Um, can you tell us a little bit about just what that process was like working with Miles and DePaul and whomever to get that story? Um, it was interesting, you know. Uh, it was interesting to hear uh, my story being uh, put out there uh, mm-hmm. and even, in, you know, in a play. And uh, right. it, it really had an effect on me, a positive effect. It was good. Uh, it only further let me know just how um, we're on what we're supposed to be doing here. And mm-hmm. this is trying to help and save and change lives. Sure. And how much it like resonates with people, yeah. and like people are like are just like impressed and astounded, and I guess also showing like a a side of things that you just hear headlines about, but you don't hear like the the human element behind. Right. I think was definitely uh, on display in that story. Um, so I guess the crux of it is gangs, right? And of so you course. talked a little bit about. Uh, your reasonings for joining was primarily camaraderie, which mm-hmm. is interesting because you'd think that should be something that you should be able to get. But, like, can you talk a little bit about what that process was like, like joining a gang and, and what your mindset was like at that point? Um, as a kid, you know, like you said, that that's something that should be a positive thing, right? Camaraderie, right. Bro- you know, brotherhood. Uh-huh. Uh, but being, you know, having that, that need to, uh, to to make friends, to be part of something, uh, it, it's natural for, for young kids, right? But the flip side to that, though, brother, is that when you start applying that camaraderie in the wrong way where 
Oh, you start gang banging. You think that the only camaraderie that exists is through gang banging. Sure. That's part of the confusion, the urban illusion that mm-hmm. I talk about nowadays, you know? Yes, like sir. A, the confusion, <laughs> the urban illusion. Um, and so I guess off that illusion, I was just going to ask, too, you talked about in the story how when your Mexican gang merged with the Puerto Rican gang and, like, you guys push out the older guys, you called it an illusion of power. Mm-hmm. What, can you explain what you meant by illusion of power? Well, because we felt empowered, because these these guys were the older guys that, you know, we used to listen to, they used to boss us around, mm-hmm. Uh and, and and it wasn't in a good way, you know. They was more abusive. We I I know it now. I see it now. It was mm-hmm. more abusive, you know. These young punks, we slap them around. Right. And for us to be able to turn the tables on them, that gave a a, an, a, a confusion, an illusion of of empowerment. You know, like man, we got these guys. Mm-hmm. You know. But you did though. Like you did push them out of the neighborhood, right? We sure did. So like that. I mean, that's power to an extent. But right. it's like, are you saying that like even that level of power is not real? power it's intoxicating that's what sure. it is it becomes intoxicating after a while because you start believing in that illusion mm-hmm. and you start turning that illusion into a reality um and then uh yeah we we get lost in the in in, in we get lost in the message of things with that mm-hmm. i'm sure that power because there there are the dudes at the top do have power right oh yeah so it's like yeah. that's like that ascent or like that journey and quest for that, I'm sure is what's intoxicating. You see, oh, I want to be like that guy. Exactly. Yeah. And the bad thing for them was that they should have known how to treat their young brothers. You mm-hmm. know, at just at just instead of just having us as some you know young kids slapping us around whenever they wanted to or when they thought that we did something wrong, mm-hmm. they should have done something more positive with the energy that we did have. Sure. Um, so we talked a little bit, or in the story, we was talking a little bit about how the violence that you started exhibiting when you were young and, you know, sixth grade or whatever, like some of it was like, you know, I get whooped so much at home. I'm not taking anything from nobody in the streets. But then also you're growing up, you know, often in an atmosphere of violence too. As far as the violence that came out of you, do you think that that came more from what was going on in the neighborhood or what was, you know, going on, like maybe what your father might have done? Like, where do you think that violence from you came from? Um, it is, I think it's a variable places, man. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, yes, at home, you know, being physical. Because when, when a parent gets physical with a kid, you're teaching them violence, man. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what it is. Uh, and then being part of the streets and uh, where I was living at at first at Loomis, watching the Italians do their thing and having the race riots that they had with the, with the African-American brothers, for some reason or another, that fascinated me, the fight. Mm-hmm. Not the reason, right, but the fight, just yeah. the physical contact. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of contributing factors to that, but uh, definitely whenever a parent, um, especially old-school parent, you know, like my father used to be, may rest in peace, and he used to, uh, when he used to put it on me, man, that conditions a mind. That conditions a young kid to um, to violence. Sure, it's like this is okay. It must right. be right. My one one of the two things happen. You become broken, mm-hmm. or you become a gorilla, man. You become a beast after yeah. a while. You know, like I said, man, bump this. You mm-hmm. know, but uh, there's just so many contributing factors. Even today, and this was back in the early '70s, and we're in 2018, and unfortunately, you see that a lot today with mm-hmm. a lot of parents uh, whooping their kids and. And, and and some of us, when we were kids, we needed it. I yeah. ain't gonna lie, but there's but there's a level, there, mm-hmm. there's a line you shouldn't cross because then you start engraving in these kids' mind. This is how you deal with shit when you yeah. get angry. Yeah, a lot of people say like it, you know, it's like a, a cultural thing or it can be. It's like no, it's okay because you know my mama did, my grandma did, blah 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 blah. Or granddaddy, whatever. Right. But it's like that. I don't think is a valid excuse. You know, right. like there's a lot of things that your granddaddy did that are not okay to right. do in 2018. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that definitely uh, teaches violence, and so it makes sense that when you you know grow up with that amidst also the atmosphere of violence and people wanting to get that power and people that wanna. Um, you know, become more, you know, express masculinity and stuff like that, that that's how it ends up. Uh, so I want to ask, you know, as that, you know, violence kind of emerged inside you and then, you know, the re- the results of, you know, Raymond's death and then what you guys, you know, went out and did about after, what was your, you know, when you were caught, whatever, the original sentence, what, what was the original sentence that you got? 35 years. 35 years. How did you feel upon hearing that in the courtroom? Um, when the judge... Uh, said 35 years I looked at my lawyer I go what'd he say and he's like, like kind of tell me to be quiet he goes 35 years and I can remember me whispering kind of out loud man I ain't doing that and I did every bit of it and then some jeez <laughs> that's oh my gosh I can't were you 
scared or you're just like, this is what I got to do? Like, yeah, I, I was scared of um, not knowing what's going to happen. You know, we already was already chasing an urban illusion. Now sure. I'm facing a prison reality, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we try to make that match. We try to, you know, I try to, you know, stand strong and, and, and be that man, that young man. But you know what, brother? At the end of the day, I was scared shitless. I ain't going to lie. I bet. I bet. Um, when you got that number, at some point, I'm sure, like, regret started setting in. At what yeah. point did regret start to set in? I think when I started to learn how to read. Okay. Because I was so confused. Yeah. Um, and, and, and once I started to learn how to read and open up my mind and understand what it is to be a Latino and how we hurt each other and and all that. And um, th- when I started educating myself, that's when the reality of, of regretfulness, being remorseful, mm-hmm. uh, try- and even the thought of how can we fix this, you know? I mean, we cannot do what was already done. I wish we could, but we can't. But how do we fix this? And I guess for me, it was, well, I must work on myself first sure. because I was full of hate. I was full of anger. I was full of confusion, fear. Uh, all all these negative emotions were wrapped up in me at one time, man, mm-hmm. and I had to sort it out. I don't know what it is inside of me that allowed me to rise above it once I started learning to read. But once I started to learn to read and my mind opened up, then I really started realizing what true power is. Yes, man. Wow, that's that's powerful statement. Knowledge being power, you know, mm-hmm. and then being able to communicate that knowledge and get people to you know work together and stuff. That was my favorite part of the story, I think, of your story. The part that really just, like, gripped me. The fact that, like, oh, my God, you, you learn how to read in, in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. Like, with a mirror through the, at least initially, right? right? Like, that's, like, you, like, how do you, like, that sounds like someone made that up for a movie. Right. <laughs> wow. I mean, so, like, this dude, Pops, then, was in the cell next to you? Yeah. And, like, this was... actually held a mirror, and you would, like, he taught yeah. you to read through that? Yeah, because what it was is that... See, I did it when 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 I got locked up. When I first got into the joint to hit Menard, you know, everybody knows you don't talk to the administration. So when you go when you get a ticket, a disciplinary report, mm-hmm. you have to go see what they call the adjustment committee. The adjustment committee is like the uh, the court system in prison, right? I didn't know that. I, that was like a big ass word. How the hell I would even going to understand mm-hmm. that? So when they first uh, uh, when I went to when I first went to the hole. Uh, they came to get me to go to the adjustment committee. I thought they was talking about the ward. I said, I ain't going nowhere. So they came in in the cell, and they did what they call a cell extraction, and they beat my ass. They they, no worked, they, they worked me good. And when I came back, when they brought me back, um, I'm all beat up, and that's when that brother Pops talked to me. He goes, hey, brother, man, I'm a biker, man. And I'm already fucked up, bruised yeah. up. I, mean, I don't give a fuck about you being a biker, but he was really trying to help me, right? right? right. And uh, that convict mentality. Sure. And... Um, and then that's how we began. And then they, like a month later, they sent me again to the to the merge uh, to uh, to the adjustment committee. Mm-hmm. And again, they did a cell stra- extraction. I didn't want to give it like the the guards that yeah. are beating you. Yeah, but they come Jeez. in with their gear. They're, oh my god! You know, they're hitting the stick. They're with their shield. Tied, you know, psychologically, and they worked. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And uh, so Jeez. that second time when they did a cell extraction, then that brother tells me, you know, hey. Uh, uh, he knocked on the wall, and I looked at the wall, and he had uh, peroxide, alcohol, stuff to you know heal myself. So I took it because I know I needed it, mm-hmm. and then that's that's when we started talking, you know. And he started okay. telling me, man, hey man, why you let them brothers, you know, why you let those people do this to you? I said, man, how can I fight? And he goes, no, that's not what I mean, brother. I mean, why are you making it easy for these guys to to get you all the time and hurt you like this, brother? He goes, you got to find a better way to fight. Mm-hmm. I go, this is the only way I know. He goes, no, nah, brother, you need to learn. And I didn't realize what he was setting me up for, but what he was setting me up for was to educate me. That's amazing. Yeah. How long did that process take to be able to, like, read books? We were in SEG together, like, for around six months. Five to, four to six months we was in SEG. And we would get a yard one hour a day, uh, one hour a day per week. and that, And every time we went to the yard... He w- we will sit down on the floor, and because the yard, the hole uh, in the hole, the yard is just a little cage, right? It's a little small. Th- All you can see is the sky above you. Wow. So we will sit down, and he would uh, do his thing with me, teach me how to read, understand the vowels, the long A, mm-hmm. long E. I still remember, you know, and, 
And I would try, and I would be looking at the book, and then when I look at him, I, I would kind of chuckle to myself. I said, damn, this dude look ugly as hell. <laughs> but <laughs> but he, somebody, somebody looks so rugged, man, but yeah, so beautiful, man. Beautiful spirit, man. Yeah. That brother really wanted to help me. Never was on no crazy stuff with me, none of that. But just really, really wanted to help me, man. Change your life, right? Change my life, bro. Have you? Did you ever talk to him again after you got out? Uh, I talked to him. Then they had transferred him because he had some time that he had to do back in California. And then we got word, like maybe a few years after that, that he had, that he had passed away in, oh. in, in Folsom. He had died oh. of a heart attack or a stroke or something really? to that effect. And I felt like um, like if I lost an uncle, you know, I, I lost bet. somebody uh, uh, that was pivotal in my, like in a my mentor, life. Mentor, you know? yeah, my mentor, man. He came at the right time. Seriously, he truly came at the right time. You man. probably wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for him. Probably not, brother. Probably wow. still be there. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about what the hole was like? Like, five and a half years, you said? Not at the same time, but still, like, you're saying, like, you know, that's enough to drive men insane, and I don't doubt it for a minute. Um, But, I mean, yeah, I mean, reading is one thing. Did that fill up the time? Like, how else did you do it? Um, You um, accept that little world that you win. And you, for me, what I did, I had, and I knew that they run breakfast, like, around 7 o'clock, 7.30. They start running breakfast. Um, I would get, you know, wash up. Uh, put my food to the side, do my exercise, my stretches, my calisthenics, push-ups, upside-down mm-hmm. push-up dips and all that. And I read for so long. Um, but, you know, everything, everything, not just in prison, even out here in the world, everything's a state of mind. And when I understood that, that helped me so much that we are what we perceive. If I felt that this world yeah. was crazy, I'm gonna, I'll go crazy with it. But if I felt that this world was a place for me to really empower myself, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's what ended up happening, man. I, I learned, uh, I appreciated it. I appreciated going to sing. I really do. I want to say that that was a major part, a part of my life that helped me gear myself into who I am today. Wow. I mean, that's some wisdom, man. Like, mm-hmm. that's some eternal truths. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. You found it there. Yeah, it's crazy. You'll find you'll find it at the, at the sometimes like they want that one saying, man. You'll find things at the worst place, man. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the best thing at the worst place. Yeah, and uh, that was for me. Uh, but it was an um, it was an experience that that I carry with me even today. It was not just something I went to and I forget about it. No, man, I I, I feed into that. I, I use my that experience that I did in Seg as a point of reference to me when I run into hard times and to allow me to realize I've had harder times, mm-hmm. man. You know, so whatever we go through, we can still rise above it, just like in the joint. That's amazing, and I think you know. So like that influence on you and like learning how to you know think and behave and have your your foundation stemming from there you know that's what got you on the path to embracing like latin unity with some of these mm-hmm. guys so um i want to ask you a little bit about the the people in folk truce with mm-hmm. jose pizarro mm-hmm. um how did that come about and like how long did it last and was it really difficult to you know get going uh, yeah, it was difficult at first because both sides, us and them, they didn't. We didn't weren't about peace. We weren't mm-hmm. about hey man, Latino unity. Man, we was out there to kill each other. Every Latino, unfortunately, at that time that was in prison, this was before cocaine even hit the spot. Okay. Uh, everybody got locked up in the early, I mean, late seventies, early eighties. We're all there for murder, for gangbanging murder. Sure. You know, it wasn't for drugs and all like that. So it was real touchy, you know, this thing about peace and Latino unity, man. People get hit for that shit, you know. Just the thought of that will get you hit, you know, really? because so many brothers have got killed on both sides. But after, you know, meeting uh, 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 Luis Rosa, Jose Pizarro, even Carlos Vega that works with us here at Bill, mm-hmm. he was also a mentor of mine that... Uh, was preaching this Latino unity thing. You uh, met Carlos in the joint? Yeah, when wow, I first met man. him, man. No and, he, and he used to tell me all the time, well, man, you a hard case. I kept going to the hole. I kept fighting with the police. I kept doing this. and uh, But, yeah, it was hard at first to, to, to bring this concept of unity among our brothers in there, especially in prison. Because mm-hmm. if it could happen in prison, man, it could happen anywhere. Right? Yeah. Anywhere, You're bro. Right. And when we first met... Uh, it was kind of scary. Brothers were even talking about putting me on a hit list, you know. And, uh, and but, I, but, but I believed in it. And, it. and, you know, when you believe in something, then you got to understand you got to make peace with yourself if you're willing to sacrifice yourself. 
And I was all about sacrificing. So I said, hell yeah, I'm going to sacrifice myself for this peace, man, that we must have among Latinos. And when we first had a meeting in the in the chapel, like it says in the book, man, it was crazy, man. Nobody mm-hmm. sat down. We were all strapped. You know, we had uh, shank-proof vest, pipes, machetes, Jeez. man. And, and then you can see everybody, their, uh, the weapons were protruding to our clothes. And it was, it, we was like standing like robots and shit, just stiff. <laughs> Just stiff, man, but... How did the, they get all this stuff in the joint? Oh, man, we find it, man. We, yeah? Yeah, man, we'll make it, man. We'll find it. We used to get steel everywhere. That was one of our objectives. You know, this brother worked at this department. So what you got to... You work at the M&M shop. The M&M shop was a place where they fix everything. When mm-hmm. they, if the sale got broke, you know, had, they had tools there. So we just said, brothers, get what we can. Get some files. Get some steels. Let's break a bunk down. Whatever we got to do wow. to make knives, yeah. let's do that, you know. Resourcefulness. Yeah, man. Yeah. So before we had Tommy Rivera Vega come in, we had you kind of play around with reading the story too. And I was struck at the point when you started talking about Raymond's death. And I guess like you said that you hadn't really looked or read the story in like eight years or something like Mm -hmm. that. So kind of like, you know, recame, but just like kind of the the depth and profoundness and emotion that I saw in you was something Mm -hmm. that... I haven't seen before in you and like and you're you're a stoic guy, you know, like you, you. and you're you're a, you know, I feel like you have so much control of your emotion. Like you and Booney too. Like I, I see a lot of people get mad around here. I don't see you get mad. Right. Like you've got a hell of a backstory. And so seeing just even that level of emotion, I was, you know, I was like, wow, like you're still as touched from the day that this happened. Um and so you told me the other last week that um, after you got out of the joint that you ran into Raymond's killer mm-hmm. somewhere. One of the guys that were there, yeah. Man, like, what was that like? I can't even imagine. Hey, and then let me tell you how ironic that is. Uh, and the way I seen him, because I went to one of his brother's wake that had just passed. That was my arch enemy. And, but as we grew up as men, and, and he worked in Humboldt Park as well, when he passed away, this brother, I went to his wake and I seen the, this one brother that was there when that happened with Raymond. And he looked at me and he like he really seen a ghost. And uh, and I looked at him too, man. And, and I guess you know, I must have seen the same way, right? And but we just shook hands, you know, it was going on. But but he couldn't keep his eye off me. He didn't know where I was coming from. He didn't know because he knew who I used to be. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know this, this, um, that I'm about peace, you know, yeah. and forgiveness. One of the main tools in my healing box is forgiveness. And, uh, cause if you can forgive yourself, you can forgive others. Right. Cause I always felt guilty for getting Ray killed, you know, hanging out with me and what have you. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, and, and I guess that moment really was a test of time for me, man, because I had a lot of emotions going through and forward. You know, I even think I wanted to find anger. I yeah. wanted to find it, you know, inside of me when I first seen him because that was something I have not, you know, been through, talking to, seeing somebody that was there, you know, yeah. taking my boy's life. And and I almost wanted to find some fucking anger inside mm-hmm. of me. But, brother, I couldn't. Wow. I couldn't. Gives me chills, man. Wow, that's something. And, you, and then you were saying you actually talked to him, right? Yeah. Uh, now uh, this brother, he does a lot of some, a lot of the work that I, some of the work like I do in Humboldt Park. And we just got into Abisu Campos High School, and there's a lot of issues uh, with that that gang that was part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to say the gang's name, but that sure. was a part of that that they're still on the vision. And we needed to talk to some people to try to bring some peace in Abisu Campos because. You know, there's a lot of stuff taking place. So one of the people that I had to talk to that I wasn't really for sure uh, at that moment was this brother that I had that was there when wow. Raymond got killed. I had seen him some years ago in the funeral home. And I seen him. He looked at me, and he grabbed me, he hugged me. He goes, man, brother, God bless you, bro. And I'm not a religious guy, but I respect, you know, mm-hmm. when people speak from the heart, right? And I said, all right, brother, you too, dude, you know? And we just talk, but we just, and every time we, you know, while, while we was conversating in this meeting, we just kept looking at each other. I think we was piercing each other's eyes, you know, just looking at each other. And um, I, I, at one point, I remember I took an emotional check-in for myself. How do I really feel? While everybody's talking, how do I feel? Bro? Are you cool, man? You know, I'm like literally thinking uh-huh. this to myself. And, uh, and I must say, brother, I said, man, I'm good. I'm at peace, man. We're doing what we're supposed to do. It's unfortunate what our past was and and 
and to be at a point where you don't, you know, hey, man, that anger no longer exists, man. Mm-hmm. That hate don't no longer exist. Hell, I even forgive you, man. Hope people forgive me, you know. Um, and, and I had to check myself inside, see how I truly felt, man. And I must honestly say, bro, I, I didn't feel nothing indifferent. Wow. Um, it, it was strange to say the least, right? Sure. But there was no hate, man. There was no fucking hate, bro. Man, that is amazing. That level of self-awareness, check yourself like that, yeah. and, like, emotional intelligence. Damn, bro, that is... I'm sure 99% of people would have just erupted in Man. rage, you know? Right. Wow. How many folks that, like, you say, could you, like, throw a percent on it in regards of people coming out of the joint are able to find and get to a place that you got to? Um... Is it really small? I think it is. Um, but I think that if we would give a lot of brothers coming out of prison that opportunity to do so, mm-hmm. I think the percentage would be a little higher. Sure. But with like me... rehabilitation sort of? Exactly. To rehabilitate the mind. Yeah. You know, because everything's a mindset, right? And if we could understand how the mind affects how we live, mm-hmm. right, uh, then we'd be surprised just how much power we truly do got. about it afterwards i think death is contagious is a great title to mm. the story too because i think it also kind of alludes to like the the public health crisis like mm-hmm. you know epidemic of gun violence too that mm-hmm. we see um what do you think today m- has made the rise in shootings and gun violence so so prolific and so much more than it was i think assumingly than when you were coming up right uh for sure i mean easy to say one of the first things is more availability with guns today yeah. in the streets i mean now it's not just 38s and 22s you know mm-hmm. now we got ar-15s ak's Jesus, and you know assault weapons but aside from that it's the mindset brother it's always the mindset uh, if we believe a certain way uh, if we, uh, if kids are just like that one movie um, from Africa, uh, A Beast of a Nation, mm-hmm. where they talk about the children warriors, mm-hmm. where uh, this uh, this tribe in Africa will get the little kids and yeah. make killers out of them. Yeah. Then after the war was over, what do you do with yeah, those kids? Right. What do you do with that mindset you condition? Yeah. It's the same thing up here in the shine, bro. We got to know how to change that mindset. We got to understand what was that conditioning without judgment, no matter how hard it is and what has happened and who, how many people have got killed. We still got to understand that mindset to help somebody, man, because Mm -hmm. even after you take a life, even after a kid kills another kid, there's still hope for that kid, man. And if we don't think so, then there won't be none. So we got to find it in ourselves, and it takes a little deeper understanding. Not just the average Joe can do this, but it takes a little deeper understanding to understand the conditioning of a young kid that mm-hmm. shooting up, killing, gunning down people, that's the way it is. Yeah. And to change that mindset, man, that, that's it's magical. Mm-hmm. So tell us then how you came to build and the work that you do here. Okay. Since I've been out to join, I got out in 96. Uh, I've been doing social work. I was working for an agency called Aspira. I worked for Ceasefire. I was a violence interrupter, a hospital respondent. I worked for Ceasefire like for six years. I worked for Aspira like six, seven years. And I knew Bill because I've done presentations for Bill. Mm-hmm. I have friends like Guillermo and Carmen Boria that 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 that, uh, that Carmen's here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had asked me many times before to do presentations, you know, in behalf of Bill for her, and which I did. So I knew about Bill. And plus, my sister back in the day when Bill was on Milwaukee and Ashland, she used to work for Bill. Oh, really? Yeah, this was oh, back no in '76 and '77. So I knew about Bill, but not. Like I do today, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I knew of it. I didn't know Bill, but I knew of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, Aspira's funding for my program that I had, when the funding went out, uh, I was already in relationship with Bill. I knew Freddie Calisco, okay. all these people, and uh, Bill hurry up and, and picked me up, and I was so I was so thankful for them because yeah. it further allowed me to do what I know that what my purpose in life is. Cool. So how do, can you tell us more about like the the intervention side of build and like how it works and mm-hmm. how you get kids out of gangs? 
Well, you know, a lot of these kids that we deal with, majority of every adults that has been in their life has failed them. And a lot of these kids are generational, meaning their mother, their father, been gangbanging or been dope dealing or mm-hmm. drug addicts, other uh, uncles and brothers and what have you. So a lot of these kids, it's hard for somebody that don't have a background uh, to, to connect with them. Because one thing, what makes intervention special, what makes us effective is that we connect with these kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways that we connect with them, like Booney and myself and Charlie, because we, we share our rec- we, we share our story. Mm-hmm. We let them know we understand what it is to be confused. We know what it is to be a victim of this or to be an assailant of that. Uh, we know what this is. We know this mindset. And when we're able to make our lives transparent to the young brothers and sisters we're trying to help, then they realize it. Man, you know what? Maybe these dudes might really understand what I'm going through. Because we came up with a, a, a saying that we're only effective as they are receptive, right? Mm-hmm. And how do we make them receptive? Well, we've got to connect with these brothers. What's the best way, one of the best ways that we have in our arsenal to connect with these kids is to share our story. Mm-hmm. Not to glorify it, but to share it, man. Mm-hmm. Understand where you at, brother. This can change. Uh, and that for us is a plus, man. It is truly, truly a plus being able to make ourselves vulnerable. we got to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Yeah. To become to empower others, we must make ourselves vulnerable. That's just how yeah, it goes, right? right. And, and, and that's what allows intervention, our intervention team, to be real effective in these communities, in the Austin community, in the South Side, in Humble Park, is that we come from there. You know, we just didn't go to school, and, you know, uh, this was our life. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 9 out of 10, we know somebody that they know. Yeah. You know, so that 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 gives it more of a credibility for us to engage these little brothers that that they allow us to engage because they say, okay, these guys, they, you know, maybe they really do know, man. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's always a intervention. One of our best tools that we have is that transparency, man. You know, we share our story with these yeah. little brothers and sisters so they can understand that we're not just talking. Right. That a book that we read or a, a, a degree that I got on this and that. We live this life, man. I know it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, and that you'd be surprised how much just that within itself helped these kids just go, all right, finally, I got somebody that might understand what I'm going through wow. and can help me. And that's what we do. Wow, that's amazing, man. I think it's the, like the, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Heart and soul, yeah, I guess, man. of the organization. You know, there's yeah. a lot of youth development agencies out there, but like mm. the guys that, like you guys who are boots on the ground mm. going into the neighborhoods, into the chiefs, like talking and having the relationships to be able to truces and whatever, like all the stuff you guys do is, is um, so amazing. Um, generally, how long do you think it takes to change a kid's mindset, like get them off the street hype and stuff? Um, some kids that join gangs just because they wanted to be part of an in-group, right? Mm-hmm. You know, hang out with the fellas and see the girls and what have you. Those those cases like that, those are kind of relatively easy. The other ones that have seen their brother get gunned down, their homies yeah. get killed, uh, or some that have died in their arms, those are the ones that take time because uh, they got to heal first. Mm-hmm. You know, our thing first, especially for a kid that just witnessed his homie get gunned down, what we're concerned for more than anything is is his healing process. We must help this brother heal. And once we can help this brother heal, then he'll understand or she'll understand what it is that's really what's going on on these streets, what kind of illusion it truly is. And then that's when we're able to get him out. Mm-hmm. But everything's a process, man. It just depends who the kid is and what, he, what kind of baggage he carries with him. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if you had any insights on how the city could be better dealing with the problem. And I'm sure first and foremost, one of them would be better clinical services and mental health services to deal with the after effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, do you have any other insights as to how the city could better deal with it? I think one of the things that would help a lot if our schools, if our our Chicago public schools, alternative schools, they had teachers that were not just teachers and educators, but social workers to an extent Mm -hmm. where they can understand the traumatic effects that these kids go through every day because a lot of times kids go through so much stuff. Like I yeah. got one kid at Aspina just lost three friends within a week's time and there's so much stuff going on in this little brother's mind and, 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 and inside of him and then a teacher says something and he just flares up and oh, he's just a bad kid. Man, there's a lot of stuff going on with these kids. I think our educators are, you know, are, are very important, instrumental in helping these kids out only if they truly understand what it is that they're going through mm-hmm. and not just see them as just any old 
you know, just a normal kid. A lot of these kids go through a lot of traumatic experiences, a lot of things been happening to them. And, and, and when a school cannot understand a kid, what do they do? They get rid of them. Yeah. And when you get rid of them, what do they do? They go in the hood mm-hmm. and they find their way. Yeah. I think like, and luckily, finally, I think that as far as trauma-informed care goes, we're kind of seeing a upsurge in, in, in trainings and, and seminars and, you know, people getting involved, especially those who work with young people, to have that training to kind of understand, oh, maybe this is why they're behaving in such and such a way mm-hmm. and better ways to do that. But it's definitely not where it needs to be. Exactly. You know? And so luckily there's, you know, places like Build that, you know, can offer some of that stuff and hopefully others. Um So we see a lot of terrible headlines and a lot of terrible statistics and like especially here a lot of people and we know people and see awful things happen to them due to the situation and I think it would be easy oftentimes to feel hopelessness set in in the midst of that. What keeps you going in the face of the hopelessness or the tragedy and my past, my past, man. Um, we all got to have something that we bounce back to, man, that keeps us our focus to make us uh, resilient to come back because we're human, man, and mm-hmm. we go through a lot of stuff. I remember I, I did this at uh, one of your other interviews when I talked about a kid that got out the gang that I got a, finally got him out and they ended up killing him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that uh, you know, that day when that happened, and especially when I went to see him in, 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 at the wake, I kept asking myself, damn, bro, what could I have done different, you know? So, you know, whenever I fall back and, or whenever I run into that moment in life, is you know, like, hey, man, I need this is not for me. I go, I usually go to the cemetery by my father's uh, graveside, my brother's graveside. I sit there for a few hours because it's such a peaceful place for me to think. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I bounce back up, man. Mm-hmm. I bounce back up. But for me... Whenever I run into those, to the, uh, when I fall down, when I fall hard, uh, like in this, this little brother that got killed, uh, I, I, I reflect on my past. You know, mm-hmm. this is what I got to do. Yeah. This is who I am. And even when we know who we are, life will test you how bad you really want this. Mm-hmm. And so that work that you've been doing with the, the gang intervention and rehabilitation and all sorts of stuff you've been doing for a little bit now that you've been out and at various organizations too, but you've been at Build for a minute now. Mm-hmm. What makes Build special, would you say? Uh, the whole Build team, man. It really does. You know, I've worked for a lot of non-for-profits since I've been out to join. This agency, you walk in here, you feel the love, you feel the compassion when the kids are in here. This is the place I was supposed to be at, man, right here, uh, because all the components are here, mm-hmm. and, and they all work together, and we breathe off each other. We live off each other. We work off each other. We support one another. And this type of work that we do, we need to have a solid team, a solid agency like Bill that understands the various facets of these ups and downs of this type of work, and to be able to have a, a place like Bill to come uh, 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 and, and, and rebalance yourself, recycle yourself, it's a beautiful thing, man, because Bill does a lot. And I'm just saying that because I work for Bill. <laughs> man, I, I'm, I'm so true, man. Uh, Bill does tremendous work. It has always have, mm-hmm. it, you know. And, and to be part of an agency like this, brother, man, is it's what I need. Yeah. You know? And I think it, it all gets put into practice and the effects of which are obvious when next year we turn 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, what everyone says about it must be true for right. such a place to have such a tenure. And so us coming on our 50 years, our bicentennial celebration. That's right. Moving forward, what are your what are your hopes and wishes for Build for the for the next 50? Man, to keep on doing what we're doing, to lay to uh, lay a pavement out for the next street intervention specialists that come our way, to come through Bill's way, to pick up what we left off, to to redo what we've done, uh, and 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 have the same passion and support. For the next 50 years, man, for Bill to have the, the same passion and support within ourselves to keep doing this work. This is what I see. All right. You got any last words about your story about what we've talked about before we wrap up? No, brother. I just want to thank you, man, for you being part of Bill and allowing, uh, you know, brothers to share their stories and to further empower us around here. 
uh, to keep us more focused and and, 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 and and dedicated to what we do, man. I appreciate you, brother, man. Sure. You're a good brother, man. Thank I do, you, Max. I do respect that. Well, Max, I appreciate you coming by, stopping by the studio and telling your story. I know a lot of this is, is deep and emotional, but the fact that you're able to speak so poignantly about it, I think says a lot about you. And, Thank and you, you, you add so much to the agency. And uh, we're lucky to have you too, man. I appreciate so, you. Uh, we'll, catch you, we'll catch you next time, man. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And uh, make sure to keep building. Orale. If we really want to end the violence in Chicago, we need to go beyond put the guns down. We need to change the story about what it means to grow up black or brown in Chicago. We need to make the potential of the young people the focus, not just our problems. We need to transform lives to create hope and build futures. We can't do it alone. Invest in our potential. Chicago young people are worth it. For more powerful content, subscribe to the Build Radio podcast. You'll hear everything from interviews with U.S. senators and NFL stars to youth poems, songs, and spoken word pieces. Search Build Radio wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, it's not how the story begins. It's where the story leads to and what kind of legacy you leave behind. Build hope, build lives, and build futures.